You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Louisville, Kentucky Mayor Greg Fisher, who is also the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, joins the Post to talk about President Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure and green energy proposal, what the plan means for the nation's cities, and his pressing policy priorities. Good morning. I'm Karen Tumulty, and I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post. I write about politics, and I want to thank you so much for joining us for our conversation this morning with Greg Fisher, who for more than a decade has been the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, and who is also currently the 78th president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Welcome, Mayor Fisher. Thank you, Karen. Good to be with you. So you have been among President Biden's strongest supporters, and you were also present in Pittsburgh recently when he launched his next ambitious proposal, which is for a massive infrastructure package. And you described this as it's it's needed to tackle our nation's biggest challenges. From the perspective of a mayor, can you describe what those challenges right now really are. Sure, let me bring a couple of perspectives to it. So I'm a business person and an entrepreneur that just happens to be mayor right now. So I look at this through a couple of different lenses and I know any great business is always investing in itself with to make sure it's got all what's needed to be able to compete. So when you take a look at what our country needs right now, as it relates to infrastructure, as it relates to workforce, as it relates to international competitiveness, we've got a lot of work to do. And we've been waiting for the right time with the right leader uh, to come forward, forward with bold plans. Uh, so when you think about the infrastructure in our country, it's no secret that we're ranked 13th in terms of the quality of our overall infrastructure. So roads, bridges, airports, uh, uh, ports, railroads, et cetera. And when you travel around the world, you you see it, you know, and you say, well, look, I'm from the United States of America. We're the richest country in the world by GDP. Why are we falling so far behind with our infrastructure? And it's got huge cost to it. You know, just the cost of uh, traffic delays over $600 billion a year, it goes on and on. And Americans are not looking bigger picture to say, We've got a major economic competitor right now in China uh, that whose economic growth over the past decades has been nothing short of impressive. And they are scaling up very rapidly on industries of the future right now, while America is kind of squabbling with itself. And as a business person, I used to love when my competitors would have internal friction and internal battling with each other because we would just cruise on by and beat them. So a, comp- a country like China loves the kind of dysfunction in underinvestment and disinvestment that they see taking place in America today. And that's why President Biden's uh, American Jobs Plan is so important. It repositions America uh, so that we can unleash the innovation of our country like we have not in 50, 60, 70 years. It's an equitable program as well. So it brings a lot more people, our black and brown communities, our underinvested communities along as well. So they can enjoy uh, the economic opportunities of our country and innovate with the added diversity that we have as well. So I, I couldn't be more optimistic about what the impact the jobs plan could make on top of the rescue plan. And then with the American family plan coming along in the next couple of weeks as well, 
we're, we're having a clear-eyed look at how America needs to reset herself over these last 50 to 70 years to compete for the next 50 to 70 years. Well, one of the criticisms of the bill, in addition to its size, is that it really it goes beyond the traditional definition of infrastructure, as you mentioned, roads, bridges, ports. Um, and as your your fellow Kentuckian Mitch McConnell points out, he says more would be spent on electric cars than on roads and bridges and ports and airports. Um, how how do you answer that criticism that that, that this really is an in, entirely new way of thinking about infrastructure? Yeah, when you think about infrastructure in 50-year-old terms, you're going to lose the battle of today, much less the battle for tomorrow. Uh, so there's obviously no secret that the electrification of the vehicle fleet is unstoppable. That's good for the economy. That's good for the environment, uh, creating a tremendous amount of new jobs as well. So it's not just the electrification of the, of the fleet, then it's how do we have the infrastructure behind that to make sure that we can support the electric vehicle economy. So that's just an example of being uh, commonsensical about where a certain industry is going. And then us asking a question as a country, are we preparing for the future? And we don't wanna prepare when it's too late. We wanna do it now where we can lead the world with electrification of vehicles and all the infrastructure behind that and the jobs that come behind that. So we can then export, obviously not just the vehicles, but then the services that go alongside of that. So that's a perfect example of how we need to redefine what infrastructure is. I don't think we should get caught up in semantics uh, about what old infrastructure or new infrastructure is. The question is, how can we be competitive, put ourselves in the best position as America to compete domestically and abroad with foreign adversaries, in this case, an autocratic China, who's definitely shown that they've got what it takes from an economic standpoint. Our political system uh, is superior to theirs, in my opinion, but we've got to get our act together and have a unified vision as a country and drop the politics out of this. I know it's hard to do, but again, as a business person, if I, didn't, if I didn't have good roads to travel over, run my goods, or high-speed internet that was ubiquitous to have provide ser services, I couldn't be successful as a company. So if I'm a business person, I'm very supportive of the American Jobs Plan because I know how important not just traditional infrastructure is, but infrastructure of the future will be to my success. And I can build my company's success on top of some of these investments that are just too big for me to make as an individual company. And the only entity that can really make that for national good is the federal government. So that's why I'm pleased to see President Biden standing up with a big, bold plan here. Well, what about the question of how to pay for it? Because the, traditionally, infrastructure is paid for with things like user fees, tolls on roads, for instance, also with debt and municipal bonds. Uh, what President Biden proposes here is a, an increase in the corporate tax rate, an increase in taxes on the wealthy. This is likely to be the hardest political fight going. So how do you convince your fellow businessmen and businesswomen that higher, higher corporate taxes are the way to go? Yeah. And maybe we should restate it to say we're restoring the corporate tax back to what it was. You know, we had the 
a massive corporate tax cut from the Trump administration uh, that did not produce the type of overall economic rebound that we were looking to see, especially amongst our least invested communities. And one example of that, uh, we've seen record amounts of stock buybacks in, of public companies. They're basically saying, we can't think of anything more productive to do with our capital than give it back to the shareholders. That should be going toward innovation. That should be going to building what these com companies can do in terms of future products and in, 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 in participating, involving their community in higher wages so that people can work themselves out of poverty. So. I joke frequently, I mean, the American dilemma is we want everything, but we don't want to pay for anything. And it just doesn't work that way, right? I mean, our moms and dads teach us that, that from the beginning. We know that as business people. So if we want better infrastructure to compete more effectively, it has to be paid for. And companies are looking at what that cost can be, and they're going to assess whether or not uh, it's a good deal. But clearly the American people do, over 70% support for the plan and how it would be paid for. Uh, this, this plan, the jobs plan will be paid for over 15 years and then it'll start whacking away at the deficit. So uh, it's got a solid plan there. Will it be negotiated? Probably so. But again, as a business person, I would be saying, if I've got to invest today to sustain my earnings ability and increase it tomorrow with a platform that's geared toward the future, I'm all in. Because as a business, you've got to not just take care of today's business, the daily work. You've got to always be improving, so the continuous improvement. But you've always got to be innovating as well. And when you take a look at some of the great innovations that have taken place in the last couple decades in our country, uh, primarily, let's say, around the Internet and the digital economy, who paid for that? Who did the initial R&D? Who did the initial proof of concept? It was the federal government. So... American Jobs Plan, the intentionality going into not just infrastructure, but innovation and workforce development will be creating additional new jobs, dramatic new jobs, good paying new jobs in the future. Do we know exactly what they are today? No. But can we bet on what America has done in the past, let's say with the space program or the example I just gave with the internet? Absolutely. Uh, there will be more outputs that are coming out of that. So if I'm competitive as a business person, I'm excited about what the possibilities the American Jobs Plan is going to do for me. Well, I, I'd like to turn to the subject of the challenge that, that you have been dealing with for over a year now. Our mayors really are on the, the front lines of, of trying to deal with the COVID pandemic. Um, right. You've also got the Derby coming up pretty soon. Can you sort of explain to us, describe where things stand for you right now in in getting people vaccinated and and moving toward something that resembles normal life again. Yeah, whatever that's going to be, Karen. Uh, no, I joke that you know mayors are like the essential workers of the political structure in America because you know we're on the door to door, you know, ground floor operation here. We cannot is uh, we, we're just totally involved with who our constituents are, so we understand what's taking place. Uh, that's why it's important that we have flexibility on how to spend federal dollars as well. And it's why you've also seen some of the great success stories fighting this pandemic taking a place uh, at the local level. We've had about 40% of our eligible adult population vaccinated so far. Uh, we've got tremendous program relative to both quantity of vaccines that are being distributed now that supplies opening up and the work that we've been doing on equity 
uh, has been just as important to us. So we're trying to get the most amount of vaccines out in the most equitable formats because the average life of the average black person in America versus the average white person, I know there's not average people, but they are demographically, uh, the average black person will live 10 to 12 years less than the average white person. So it's important in the distribution of the vaccines that we prioritize equity in vaccinations. So uh, we've also had good success along the way with that. So I'm really confident about how we're doing with that. We're uh, you know, around a 4% positivity rate. Our incident rate is around 12%, so quite low. Uh, we continue to decrease now for 12 weeks in a row. Our surrounding states are having a little mini surge right now. Fortunately, we've been uh, immune from that so far, and we intend to do that. We still have a mask mandate in here. So that leads us up then to a big event, right? The most famous two minutes in sports, the Kentucky Derby, uh, 24 days to the run for the roses. And so that's going to be interesting. Now, it's not going to be near the crowd that it normally is. Normally 175,000 people show up for the Derby from all over the world. Uh, this year, the crowd size is being restricted to 50,000 people. It's a massive facility so people can be spread out. Most of the people are outside. Uh, we passed it through all of our public health protocols. And then, of course, we're at a high rate of vaccination right now, or people have had the virus already. So we feel good about where we're at from a public health protocol, uh, but we have to see, right? It's three and a half weeks, which is a lifetime in this pandemic in terms of what can happen. Uh, but I'm really optimistic with the rate of vaccination that's taking place, not just here in Louisville and in Kentucky, but around the country, that we're going to continue to knock down these variants and transmission. And of course, that's the whole thing. It's the vaccine versus the variant and the variant mutating. So that battle is going to continue for a while. We're in pretty good shape in terms of how we look locally and in our country here as we look at a couple months, but uh, around the world, obviously, there's a lot more challenges, and it's in our interest here in America to make sure the rest of the world's in good shape as well, because as long as this virus is moving around, it's going to keep mutating, and when it mutates, that could present additional challenges for us. But right now, I'm feeling pretty good about where we're at, but if there's one thing I've learned, Karen, about the virus is you have to stay humble to the virus, because you don't know what it's going to do next. Well, that's right. I, I, and again, we're a year into this. Is is there anything that you know now that you wish you would have known then when when all of us started <laughs> sort of giving up everything that resembled a normal day-to-day -day living? Well, it was chaotic, right? I mean, you know, it's been over uh, a year now when the virus came onto the shores of America and you know, it, we did not have a coordinated federal response by any stretch of the imagination. So the states were left to their own devices, uh, cities. Some I'm, I'm fortunate here in Louisville, our governor, Andy Bashir has done a nice job. We work well together, but in some places, mayors uh, were working at, at counter purposes with governors in terms of being able to have practice good public health guidelines. So I think, I hope what we bring out of this is you know, the necessity for strong federal responses in terms of prep preparation uh, for the next pandemic and then a strong response, being able to track data uh, so that we know who's being in endangered, who's getting the vaccine, who's been tested. You know, it's been a mess in terms of that. When you take a look at it from a business perspective, it's a failing grade. Now, as uh, the Trump administration uh, did a nice job with getting the vaccines ready. So I'll give them credit for that. 
they didn't have a distribution plan. Uh, so you got to get it into the last inch is what I call when you get the shot in the arm. And the Biden team has really done a nice job on that. And then, of course, we've been ready at the local and state levels to administer the vaccines as well. So I hope the learning is it's just the appreciation for good public health practices. And that needs to be part of our national defense, national prep preparation so that we can continue to move forward and not just focus on the economic disruption, which of course was massive, and I'm grateful for the relief from Washington to get through that, but to think about the death and suffering that took place. Yesterday, we just passed 1,000 dead in our city from the virus. Our city population's close to 800,000 people or so. Obviously, around the country, it's well over a half million. This is really sobering. So remembering all these lives lost and all the tragedy and suffering that took place so that we're in just a better spot next time. Well, you have also been trying to drive home the message, I think as recently as in a news conference last week, that this vaccine is safe. Are you finding yep. that um, hesitancy is an issue? And with which populations uh, do you really feel that you need to drive home that, that message? Yeah, when you think about the arc of the vaccine and where it's at, you know, we're going to be getting to a point here pretty soon in our city and in many other places. And then, of course, some of the rural areas have already faced this where there is uh, skepticism or hesitancy to take the vaccine. Initially, when demand far exceeded the supply, that was not a problem. Uh, but now with supply becoming so bountiful, uh, we're, we're getting to a different point as we just completed actually a, a, a survey, a poll in our city to understand what are the issues behind people not taking the vaccine. And these are folks that have not taken it so far, right? So safety becomes the number one issue. So that's where we're going to be focusing what our measures are and just reminding people that, look, over hundreds of thousands of people have been involved in clinical trials with the vaccine. There's now about 500 million uh, people that have been vaccinated around the world as well. This is a safe proven vaccine. So we have to move into that phase of the communication to start convincing people. Uh, many folks too want to wait and see. Uh, well, there's obviously plenty of people that they can uh, see that have had the vaccine and there, there have been no adverse impacts to that. So in our city, uh, we're having about equitable distribution racially in terms of accepting of the vaccine right now. The biggest challenge seems to be more of an age challenge. So the younger people, people under 40 years old, who might be saying, you know, I'm healthy. It doesn't matter if I get the virus anyway. We're not thinking about the people that they could potentially infect, but they think I'm healthy. I'll get through, get through this. There's no rush for me to get the vaccine. So it's young people. And obviously all the national polling indicates too, uh, that, you know, there's a part, this has become a partisan issue science has, which is unfortunate. So it tends to be more hesitancy amongst Republicans and then some people in the rural areas as well. And we saw that in Kentucky where some people from Louisville, which were the biggest city in Kentucky, were about a million and a half metro population, could drive out into the uh, rural areas of Kentucky and easily get the vaccine. And they would say, why is it so hard to get it in Louisville versus I can get it in Owensboro? Well, it's because there's higher demand uh, per capita here in the city. So those are the, some of the issues that we're dealing with right now. And I think as a country, ironically, from the communication we had, let's say in mid-January to what's going to be needed to take place in mid-April, mid-May, it's gone from, gosh, how can we get any vaccine to 
how do we get to the people that are skeptical so we can drive to herd immunity and get rid of this pandemic, hopefully once and for all? Well, the other thing that has been going on over these last couple of weeks is I think the entire country is fixated on the trial that is going on in Minneapolis of former police officer Derek Chauvin in the, in the death of George Floyd. That I imagine it has a special residence resonance in Louisville, um, given what your city went through in the death of Breonna Taylor in last March. Um, can you talk a little bit about again what what Louisville is feeling as this trial is going on? And also, how should Breonna Taylor be remembered? What what difference has she made in her death in um, in your city? Yeah, no, this is the you know critical issue of the day when you think about challenges uh, that mayors are dealing with. You know, it's the challenge of the pandemic, the economic recession, uh, racial inequity, uh, climate change, uh, gun violence in America's cities has uh, uh, really increased since the pandemic as well. Uh, but with the trial going on in Minneapolis right now, uh, a lot of people are reliving the trauma that took place and that has taken place in the black communities of our country for obviously throughout the unfortunate history, this aspect of it, our country. And so it's um, a very tender time. And what happens in Minneapolis is going to ripple all across the country. Uh, for us here in Louisville, uh, you know, the tragedy of Breonna Taylor last March and the challenges that we've uh, had in the summer and the fall uh, have translated into uh, more progress, I hope, than ever before we see in terms of racial equity, in terms of uh, investment in our communities, in terms of participation with our activists community from protest to productivity to real change that we can make. Uh, it's part of our efforts and when I declared racism as a public health crisis uh, in our communities also. Our response has been to lean into these issues around inequity, around traditional, uh, traditionally difficult relationships between police and communities of color, to enhance police community legitimacy and make all the changes that are required to do that so that we can co-produce public safety between the community and the police. Uh, people don't disagree with the need for policing, it's how it's done. So how do you legitimize that, especially in communities of color, uh, so that they feel like they are part of a solution versus an over-policed uh, minority uh, in our city or in our country? So uh, we've been very aggressive uh, since Brianna's tragedy to try to get into the root cause of some of these problems, whether it's specific reform within the police department or overall advancements around racial equity and police community legitimacy. So well, we're seeing kind of the story of America play out in the George Floyd, uh, Derek Chauvin trial right now in Minneapolis. And my prayer is I just hope that America will be aware enough and accepting enough uh, and humble enough, white America, I refer to with that, to say these are legitimate grievances that have gone on for way too long, that have been unaddressed, that need to be dealt with on a systematic basis. President Biden is doing that too, by the way, in the American Jobs Plan. There's a $5 billion portion of that to deal with some of the issues around community violence and reimagining public safety. So 
there's just lots of issues that are addressed around these issues from racial equity to police reform and mayors are at the forefront of all that because it's happening in our streets and of course the police departments are part of our city so it's a sobering time but it's an exciting time at the same time because there's a lot of transformative potential out there so what what sorts of i mean ultimately so many of these things come down to questions of resources and right now you see cities are under so much strain dealing with COVID, dealing with crime. What has gone on in Louisville that, with, with, in terms of community policing that you think might be a good model for the, the nation as a whole as it, it tries to grapple with all of these challenges at once? Yeah. So the United States Conference of Mayors, uh, which you know that I'm president of, we're going to be having a summit in mid-May on reimagining public safety. Uh, we have got to broaden the aperture of which people look at public safety beyond the police department, that police are there to enforce. You know, so how do we as a country and as a city invest more in intervention, in prevention, in community mobilization, in reentry, all of these areas that surround uh, areas of crime and police activity. How do we lessen poverty in our cities? Because that's the number one issue of challenges that comes through any mayor's office, whether it be crime, healthcare, education, public transportation. We have to relook at how we uh, take on all of those issues. And we have to have the first response, the best first responder respond to the issue. So let's say that it's a mental health crisis. And if it's a safe situation, is it best to send a police officer there? Or you had send somebody that's skilled with mental health to de-escalate the situation? Could be a domestic violence problem. It could be a homeless problem, which plagues most American cities right now in terms of evaluating the situation, what type of services are needed, and then how do you get help to that individual or somebody in a mental health crisis? So we've just got to broaden. Uh, we're doing this here in Louisville. We're in our middle of our budgeting process right now. We'll have a new budget reflecting a lot of this whole of government approach to issues around crime and homelessness uh, that will, I think, be much more responsive and be much more uh, well thought through. Because when people look at these problems, what I like for them to say is, OK, what are the systems that are in place that are causing this problem? And let's not just not tinker around with a result. Let's really take a look at system redesign so that we can get better results. Because what we're asking police officers to do in America, and I know police are under a lot of heat, they can improve just like everybody else. But what we're asking them to do is just way too much. We're asking them to enforce the law. We're asking them to be marriage counselors. We're asking them to be homeless specialists, mental health specialists. It's just too much. So we've got to bring broader resources to the problem design those systems, provide the resources from the federal and state levels on down to the city level and get to work on that. Because at the city level, while we're the ones doing the work, you know, we have the least amount of resources to do the work with. And that's why these system redesign changes at the federal and the state level are so important. And that's why I'm so enthusiastic about the jobs plan of President Biden's and the impending American, American family plan as well that could really change the way we define our responsibilities to each other as Americans. Well, Mayor Fisher, in the little bit of time we have left here, um, I'd like to get back to a point that you made at the very outset of our conversation, where you pointed out that 
our political divisions have become a competitive issue, a, a competitiveness issue that, that really is, is hurting this country in its ability to compete around the world. So what's the answer here? I mean, do you see any reason for hope or any path forward that can, can get us beyond um, the position point we're in now where you know the two parties can't agree on what's truth or or that even things like mask mandates become political signifiers and and not public health measures how do we get past this well it is a battle of ideology there's no question about that but i'm optimistic i always like to think good and truth prevails and uh you know science prevails uh, the belief that every individual should have a platform for their human potential to flourish. I think that's what the purpose of government is, is to provide that platform uh, so people can flourish. It's how we define our city value of compassion. I think everybody is born with a good heart, with kindness and compassion in that. And it's the job of leaders, whether it's political leaders or secular leaders, to remind people of that. And that's our commonality. Then we can get into our secondary differences of politics or skin color or whatever it might be. But if we can embrace that common humanity, we can move forward together. And the American people see that. You know, while there is this paralysis in Washington right now, there's 70% of the people are behind the rescue plan, the jobs plan. They see these negative impacts that we've talked about in the program here. And they're like tired of this bickering. It's like, you know, the kids, it's like, hey, come on, come to the adult table and solve some problems, okay? Uh, drop whatever your perspective is on why we need to have a political battle, but look toward the future of this country and where we're going. So to me, it's very plain and it's brought into stark relief by, again, the ascendancy of China and what they're doing to us economically and how we are now playing catch up to them, which is kind of hard for people to grasp, but that's the reality of the situation. So Americans must embrace that. And then you see a really optimistic sign with our young people, our younger generations, the marches uh, in the streets were multiracial. You see them embracing our common humanity and the injustice that comes when people don't have the opportunity to escape poverty or they don't have access to opportunity and they're just not gonna put up with it anymore. You're seeing that with corporate America as well embracing opportunity for all and justice as opposed to just focusing on profits. So there's a lot of forces, I think, coming together that are put positioning America in a much better place. So uh, maybe some of the politics in Washington, are, they are behind where America is right now. And I'm hopeful that they'll catch up through the ballot box. And it's ironic that that's where we end up right now because you're seeing so many states trying to restrict what their voting eligibility and voting patterns and practices were right now. And I think that's the sign of a final gasp of desperation to hold on to uh, the good old past, which really were never that good old times anyway for most people. But the demographics of America are gonna overcome that pretty quickly and will be positioned in a much better place for everybody. Well, Mayor Fisher, we want to thank you so much for being with us today on Washington Post Live and to wish you a, a derby that is as safe and healthy as it is exciting. Well, I appreciate that. Invite everybody to come to, to Louisville and enjoy our great city. Thank you so much. And um, please tune in at 3 p.m. Eastern time today when my colleague Ann Hornaday 
will be interviewing the producer and director of Oscar-nominated documentary, The Mole Agent. You can always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and to find out more information about our upcoming programs. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.